This week I'm talking to The Scaffold, the acclaimed comedy review group and hit makers who formed in the early 60s and were part of that generation which followed in the wake of the goons and were much influenced by them, such as Beyond the Fringe, The Bonzos and later Python and The Goodies. I hope you enjoy the interview, which is not focusing so much on the goons, but we do discuss them and Spike Milligan in particular. It was a real treat speaking to the three of them. When I was at primary school, way back in the 1980s, every Friday afternoon, we would be herded into the assembly hall and made to sing a whole bunch of songs accompanied by Mrs. Muir on an upright piano, which was very, very badly in need of tuning. Uh, None of us kids enjoyed this ordeal, and the more rebellious of our number would either mouth the words or simply not even attempt to join in, while always being wary of Mr. Massey's roving eye and readiness with a steel ruler. Uh, The songs were usually terrible and included things like Grandad and uh, Tony Chestnut Knows I Love Him, uh, which required physical actions as well as singing, and and also things like the Banana Boat song. Um, The only time any of us perked up and actually engaged with the whole thing was on those rare occasions when the gods shone down on us and Mrs. Muir would play the first few notes of Lily the Pink and there would be a warmth of recognition which would ring around the hall and we'd all sing along lustily oftentimes squatting down and jumping up along with the chorus and a wonderful time was had by all and it's interesting that that song by the scaffold and another of their hits actually informed my childhood in a quite memorable fashion i'll come back to the other song later So it it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome them to the podcast, uh, Roger McGough, John Gorman, and Mike McCartney. Hello. Hello, Tyler. Thank you very much. Thank you for for joining me today. And this is ahead of, you're coming back together for a special uh, show, or or two shows, I believe, on the 29th of October at the Everyman in Liverpool. And this is... I didn't know that. Yeah, Roger. Really? Roger, oh, you're one of the scaffolds. Oh, sorry, I'm I, I just getting some... together. We're reuniting. Oh, where is Liverpool? Where is Liverpool? <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm sure we're getting together, Tyler. What we that? We're getting together. Have you got a routine worked out already? Yeah, we have. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. I've got the papers. <laughs> um, just in case there's anyone listening to this, because I have, you know, I do have listeners. If there's anyone listening to this, um, who's who's not aware, I mean, this is this is to mark the 
I guess it's the 60th anniversary of the three of you first performing together, coming together and performing. Yep. Um, now, I think I'm right in saying, John, John, you were one of the, if not the chief driver behind the first Merseyside Arts Festival. Is that right? Yes, I, that was in June. That was June the 6th, 1962. Okay. I wanted, after the festival was over, I wanted to keep the name alive because I thought having to wait 12 months before the next festival, people have lost interest. So the idea was to do something on a regular basis. And I rang Leslie Blonde, who owned the Hope Hall, which is now the Everman Theatre, to see whether he could help. And he gave me a Tuesday evening because it was nothing happening because the cinema that was there had stopped doing the full week and then we're only doing Thursday, Friday and Saturday. So he, I went to see Mr. Brammel, who was the manager of the building, and he said, well, Tuesday's available. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, we'll do that. And on, an, on October 1962, we did the first night and 106 people turned up. And rather strangely, I was at the Everman last night for a poetry reading and is in exactly the same room. Mm -hmm. uh, there were 106 people there. Are you joking? <laughs> no, absolutely. How did you know the 106 first time round, John? That's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. Was, it, was this when, when you were known as the Liverpool One Fat Lady All Electric Show? Well, we had no name at that time. We were just a, a gang of people. And each week, more and more people turned up to perform. And we eventually ended up with probably tw between 20 and 30 people who were performing. And they were doing poetry. They were doing chats. They were doing music. And I had gone to see Alan Williams at the um, Blue Angel Club, because that was the club in Liverpool where all the groups who had been playing around Liverpool at the time, and was reputed to be over 900 groups, would go down there after they finished gigging. So that was the place to go. So I went to see Alan, and he agreed to let us have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, because we were very busy Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I said, okay. And from the 20 odd that were on in the Everman Theatre, I chose eight, which included Mike Collins, Jenny Beatty, Mike McCartney, Roger McGough, uh, uh -huh. Celia Mortimer. Celia Mortimer, that was the one. Oh, yeah. uh, so there were eight of us, and we needed a title. Now, most of us lived in Liverpool eight. So they thought, well, that'd be a great thing. We'll call ourselves the Liverpool One Fat Lady, which is bingo yeah. terminology for eight. Yeah. Non-electric show because we're not doing any music. So the first night, the Monday night, we all turned up and a, it was downstairs, very small stage. And Alan said, okay, I'll introduce you. So we stood at one side of the stage and I said, this is the title, the Liverpool One Fat Lady Non-Electric Show. Alan enjoyed his drink immensely. So <laughs> we then went onto the small stage and said, ladies and gentlemen, first time down here, there are great people who do sassai and all that sort of stuff. And it's the ladies, fat, factor ladies, the ladies, fat, <laughs> non, and anyway, they are. And then we sort of like shuffled on. Tuesday night, exactly the same. Wednesday night, exactly the same. So we said, it's never going to catch on this name. So we need a, a better name. So I was living in 88 Rodney Street and we had a meeting to decide what we should do. I had a book called Roger's Thesaurus, which mm -hmm. you may have read heart cover to cover. When I opened the first, I opened it just a page at random and the top left hand side, the first word was football. 
So we kicked that around for a while. Oh, but, I get it. Very uh, nice. So we, we couldn't make that catchy. Open the page, another page, and the top left-hand corner was Scaffold. There was an LP out at the time called On the Scaffold, and it was a film called Lift of the Scaffold. I've and, seen that. It's a good film. Yeah. Mm. So we, we said, well, we'll, get, we'll try it for 10 years. Is that the music, Jonas? What was there? Um, yeah, there was an LP. Miles Davis. LP, yeah. Miles Davis. Film. Okay. Uh, I'll, tell, I'll tell you who's on the cover of the Miles Davis. Oh, I didn't what? know this till recently. It was Jean Moreau was on the cover of the oh, Miles right. Davis Lift of the Scaffold album. Mm. She'd been mm. good in the scaffold, wouldn't she? She'd be great. She'd be Perfect. That became our title, and we thought, lift us to the, lift to the scaffold, get on the scaffold, drop dead with the scaffold, it's funny with the scaffold. And we said, well, let's give it a try. But it didn't. And, and one thing about it, too, remember, John, isn't it true that we weren't uh, like a band? We, were, we didn't play musical instruments. And at first, we do a lot of like sketches and satire and stuff. And I yeah. suppose the idea of the scaffold, it gets a bit like. Um, you know, a bit dark, and, and we used to wear gloves and black gloves, and the, the idea of taking politicians of the time and, you know, royalty, cut them to pieces. And, yeah, yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Did, you, well, we, did you appear we, at the estab Sorry, did you appear at the establishment club a bit later, later on? on? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so Roger, obviously you were you were doing your poetry, but you'd been a teacher at Hull University, I so believe. Was, yeah. No, I was no teacher in, in Liverpool. Yeah, comprehensive. Oh, okay. St Kevin's. Yeah. Teaching okay. Phil Redmond. Phil Redmond was one of my, oh. my students. Yeah, went on to do things. He did great. He'll, he'll never get anywhere. No, no, he's, he's very promising. Did he but did he base any of the teachers in Grange Hill on you? I, well, no, I, I used to give them things to do, like, lads, I want you all today, class, I want you all to pretend you live in a street somewhere, you know, any ordinary street, huh. just write stories about the people. He was at 11, 12, very bright. And okay. I just gave him that. And they, he went on to do that, you know, to do Brookside. Mm. Very never good. gave me credit. Never gave me credit. <laughs> and Mike, you you were a, a slip of a lad at this time, and you were a hairdresser working with um, later to be television's Lewis Collins. Is that right? I was a ladies' barber, correct, of Andre Bernard's. Mm. That he sent a handing up to a gentleman called Mike Weinblatt, who kept saying, "I go to the Hope Hall. They're doing all these events and happenings." And you'd like it. Uh, you're sort of artistic. I wanted to go to art college and couldn't get in. And so I went down to the Hope Hall and uh, watched these people. John, Roger, Adrian, Henry was part of the... And by the way, John, you know that big thing we keep saying, the Liverpool One Fat Lady Non-Electric Show. And yeah. I fought you all my life. I found a piece of paper, the original piece of paper, what we were called, and we were called the Liverpool One Fat Lady All Electric. All electric I know, but I tried to correct that. Um, yeah, later well, you on. didn't. It's on a piece of paper, and I've got the proof, and that's that. <laughs> okay, Mike. Mike, what did you Mike, build? Mike? What did you build yourself as? Me. Yeah, I was Mike McCartney. You're Mike Blank. Mike Blank. Oh, yeah. no, no. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for reminding me of that, Tyler. Mm. A very good remembrance. Thank you. <laughs> I helped uh, John Gorman, Roger McGough, Adrian Henry, uh, Jennifer Beattie, and Celia Mortimer uh, greatly, coming from my lady's apprentice barbership, 
and going to the Hope Hall all the time, as much as I could. And I helped them, and particularly John Merseyside Arts Festival, Gorman, greatly for many, many months. And then eventually the Merseyside Arts Festival program came out. And so I was greatly, uh, I worked so hard for uh, the eventual scaffold. I thought it's going to be great joy seeing my name in print for all the hard work I'd done. So I was on the 86 bus going home to Fourth Lynn Road on the top of the bus in, in the smoke. And there on the piece of paper, I opened up the main contributors and I read them all. My grandfather, all of Goldman, McGough, all these wonderful people. Uh, my name isn't there. So I thought, oh, oh dear. So I went to the back and there's like extra people and they're all like nobodies that did nothing. And I thought, <laughs> what's going on here? I helped so much there. And then I went back to the front and what I had forgotten to tell you all is right at the beginning of this, when Gorman was doing the, right, what's your name again to me? And because our kid was in a group, a very popular group, uh, Liverpool at that time and our surname my name was McCartney mm. and that surname was getting a bit sort of famous at that time and so I, I he said what's your name I said oh god god leave that blank as a joke <laughs> John and so there I go back to the fronting <laughs> there amongst all the luminaries all the people that contributed was Michael Blank <laughs> Should have stayed with it, Mike. Actually, you know, it's quite. Yeah, quite it would have been classy if it's B L A N Q U E, like oh, it's blank. like it's mm. yeah. of the French blank. Mm. Blanc, yeah, blanc, blanquety blanc. <laughs> um, and you got you seem to get onto from what I can see, you seem to get onto telly quite quickly. Yes, we were talent spotted that when we were doing the um, the Blue Angel. Hmm. One of the uh, friends of Celia's, uh, her boyfriend was a, a journalist, Rod Jones, who worked with the people. And Tom Brennan and Roy Bottomley, who uh, Tom was from Crosby, they ran a, a news agency in Manchester for television, for ABC television. And Peter Maloney had been doing um, an insert for the programme on comedy, but he left Liverpool to become a monk in Africa. Oh, yeah. And so they rang up, Tom Brennan rang up Rod Jones and said, do you know anybody in Liverpool who could take his place? And he said, well, strange enough, my girlfriend who goes down to the Blue Angel to see her friend, she told me about this group and one of the people who was leading it was me. And so one morning there was a knock on my flat door and I was living in Falconer Street in Liverpool. I opened it and Rod Jones says, can you ring this number in Manchester? Uh, Tom Brennan, reverse charges, went to a phone box, rang him up, and he said, well, we're interested in all these musical groups that are appearing in Liverpool, but we wanted to do somebody, somebody come along and do a funny side of it. So I said, yeah, okay, no problems. They sent a limousine from Manchester, mm -hmm. picked me up from the flat, drove me to Manchester. I did the insert, um, just doing spoofs about the music. They paid me £12.50. At the time, I was on the dole getting £4. Wow. And the, the limousine brought me back to Liverpool. Three weeks later, I got a telegram to say, would you ring 
Tom Brennan, the game of reverse charges, and Rankin. He said, have you seen the article in the Echo from the Liverpool Council? Because they're so fed up with all this pop nonsense in Liverpool, they want to commission somebody to write a play about the nicer part of Liverpool, like Chilwell, and they're going to pay them £2,000. Because Tom Brennan was from Crosby, he said, well, you and I know that nobody in, in Chilwell does anything. It all comes from a, a, a mixture of people. So I said, OK, well, um, we do have an idea. It's a Shakespearean, Liverpool Shakespearean actor. I said, but it takes two people. He said, that's not a problem. So, OK. And I ran round to Rogers living in 44 Canning Street, told them what it was. They sent a limousine, pick us both up on the Saturday. We went out, we did the, uh, the um, sketch, the, the Liverpool actor, to be or not to be. That is oh, the question. Well, it's as noble in the minds to it. Um, uh, suffer, uh, uh, suffer the slings and arrows. Okay. Suffer the slings and barrows. Arrows. Uh, arrows of their um, uh, outrageous fortune. Outrageous fortune. So it was, it was very much like that. They paid us both £12.50 each and then the limo back to Liverpool. But what we did when we, I, I said to Roger, after the show, we'll go into the green room and we'll do some sketches for them. So <laughs> Im impress them, I've just been you know, how funny we are. <laughs> and that worked because they, they were looking to, for a replacement programme for Saturday night, which had been ABC at large. Lloyd Shirley was the producer. Yeah. Was, he was from, originally from Canada. And he heard about this, so he, we got contacted. Clive Goodman was the director. Yeah. Contacted us about would be interested in doing a pilot. So I had to pick five people to do the pilot. So it was Roger, Mike, Adrian Henry, Jenny Beattie, and myself. We went down to Teddington, Lock. Yeah. All expenses. Uh, British up. Eagle. We went on the British Eagle plane. All right. And then we did, we did the pilot, came back up to, uh, back home, and um, Lloyd then contacted us and said, well, we're, we're interested in, in going ahead. So we'd like to, I said, well, before you make a decision, we're doing a show at the Hope Hall on Sunday evening. Why don't you come and see it? You get a better idea. They turned up and the whole of the front row, there was these big group of people all dressed in suits and the like. So you knew they weren't normal people. We did the show. Afterwards, we went to the Blue Angel to, to chat. And I sat under the surge with Lloyd Shirley. He says, yeah, I definitely want to use you guys. Uh, but I've got a, a small favour to ask. Ask away. He said, well, you, Roger and Mike, are OK, but I'm just a little bit concerned about Adrian and Jenny. He said, because they, they are a little on the plump side, and at that time, television, if you were like that, it, because it was flattened, yeah. made you look bigger. So he said, uh, we've got these two people in London that we've been working with, John White and uh, Sheila Fern. Uh, so we'd like to like you to do a pilot with them, see how he gets on. We said, yeah, okay. So I, uh, I had to tell Jenny and Adrian uh, uh, went on, and Adrian never spoke to me again because he's <laughs> oh, no. Is that Gazette, John? Again? Is that Gazette we were on? Because yeah, it became Gazette. Yeah, yeah. And we were booked to do seven weeks with possible um follow-on of uh, other weeks if it worked. We did, I mean, for those seven weeks, we each got 44 pounds each. 
that's fine. Uh, all our expenses, when we went down to London, we got the £12.50 substance, substance, substance. Yeah. and then when we, when we went up to Mass, we got all our expenses. So we, never, we went out of pocket, we got paid extra money. When we didn't finish the seven weeks, they took up the option for another six weeks. Then he took up another option. Eventually, we did 26 weeks. Wow. And then, so, and when it was over, I had in the bank, I had over 1,600 pounds and I opened a boutique in Liverpool with the money. Yeah. But because we've been on television, we were then, we could play anywhere in the Northwest. We, we were not nonstop um, playing yeah. clubs and, and places like that. So that was our launch, if you like, into uh, the world of show business. During one of the shows in the audience of the, the television show, uh, Pat Burke, who was our agent, had brought along Tom Mitchell from uh, Edinburgh, who owned the Travis Theatre. And he saw us and thought we were really brilliant. And he booked us to appear at the Travis Theatre. Unfortunately, the festival was over by then, but we, we appeared immediately after the Edinburgh Festival had finished. In the Traverseer, seated 60 people within three weeks and immediate, we were immediately booked to do the following year. And then we did the next, I think, seven years going to the Edinburgh okay. Festival. Wow. So yeah. it, it, was all, it was all a matter of like, oh, I say degree of luck, but being in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. Uh, yeah. Tyler, do you want to hear a little story about the 60-seater uh, Traverse? Oh, go on, yeah, please. It was, it was great. So a tiny little place. And the big trick at the end of the, uh, the, I think it was the first half, was to get up to the bar. It was staircases on either side of the stage uh, through a very thick it was a tenement building mm. on the way to the, Royal, to the Royal Mile. And the big trick was to get up to the bar before the audience to get your drink in. And so I'm watching uh, John and Rog doing this. Uh, I'll tell you what it was. This must be, this must be love. <laughs> and do you remember John Rog uh, that one time when the drunken Scotsman, you probably remember his yeah. name, was in Worst the worst sketch I've ever seen in my life. That's, yeah, that's why he said, this must be, this must be the worst sketch I've ever fucking seen in my life. Uh, so anyway. Billy yeah, Connolly, I've never forgiven him. But that one was quick. I had to get up to the bar. So I legged up. The boys had just, uh, uh, love must be love. Whoop up the stairs, got to the bar, just getting the order in. And there's a couple out of the corner of my uh, eye, obviously professionals, had legged up the back of the circuit to get to the bar first. But I just watched them out the corner of my eye and got my drinking scotch and cokes, whatever it was for the boys. And then eventually, I was just about to go. I looked down at the, I could feel daggers coming from the two because yeah. I pipped them to the post. <laughs> and then there at the end of the bar, these two, they were called Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Never heard of them. Well, <laughs> I, there's a codicil to that because when I went up to the bar later on, there was nobody else in there except this couple in the corner. Huh? And, and Tom, the barman, behind the bar, there was a big mirror where all the uh, glasses were kept. And I got to the bar, and as Mike said, there was this couple there, but the, the, the man had his back to me, and Tom came. I said, could you just have a glass of beer because the, the adrenaline was doing the show. He brought the glass over, and as I lifted up the glass and I looked in the, uh, the, the mirror, 
I could see that the man with his back to me was Richard Burton. So I tapped him on the shoulder uh-huh. and he turned to me and I said, Dickie, I'm a big admirer of yours. Is it all right if I buy you a drink? Uh-huh. Said, uh, yes, uh-huh. uh, I'll um, have a scotch, please. So I how, 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 did he t- how did he take to Dickie? Just took it normally. I mean, I think he was too shocked anyway. <laughs> and I, I, I turned to Tom and said, large whiskey for my friend, please. Uh-huh. And then I, I, I looked round Richard and I said, what about your Judy? <laughs> and she looked across, said, oh, uh, gin, please. I said, no, large gin for Dickie's Judy. <laughs> and they picked up the glasses. I picked up mine. I drank mine. They took a sip and I'd finished. And I turned to go and he said, oh, um, I'll buy you a drink now. And I said, no, it's all right, because I know you actors don't get paid very much. <laughs> anyway, but it, was no, it wasn't in his memoirs. I checked. Oh, you're joking. No, uh, to yeah. upset. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roger, uh, yeah. what have been you in? Because you've, you've not, you've not had a chance. No, no, it was interesting just listening to, to John. I've got memory. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. very interesting. All, all the detail I'd, I'd forgotten, actually. You remember this? I, mean, I knew all the, the names and the places, but put them together in, in a sequence quite... Uh, quite interesting you, you were becoming i guess you were becoming better known and well known being on tv and everything how were you reacting to that well that took a, a while really didn't it because i was again uh, i was only a teacher when we started and then i i gave that up when um as johnson when we got on, on telly and that was i was good i i, I remember taking early retirement uh, i was like 20 been teaching huh. for four years and then mm. I took out of time. Uh, and if I'd have stayed on another like three or four years teaching, I'd have got my pension, teacher's pension all my life. Mm. I never did. So the pension's uh, the basic one. That's my only regret. Um, but it was, yeah, it was all, as, as John said, it was all, all exciting, really. And just being there meeting Brennan and, and Bottomley, who were very important people in our lives, and Lloyd Shirley, ABC Television, um, and, and Clive Goodwin became our, our, our director and a friend of ours. Um, and it seemed to be the way to go. We didn't question it, and we just went along. And of course, then we got onto BBC and working. And then it became a sort of more more difficult. People people were less. I don't know if you agree that when when Billy Cotton and people were head of BBC, they Billy looked Cotton a bit Jr. down on yeah. They looked a bit That's down right. on us. We were sort of scouser, wacky wits. You know, we weren't quite the normal um, uh, review people, you know, the, the, the sort of, uh, who became uh, the Oxford and Cambridge footlights, we were very different and, and working class, Liverpool, uh, which a lot of people loved, and a lot of people, I think, um, you know, were a bit, as they were about the poetry, you know, poetry is, belongs somewhere, has its place in society, and it's not really in um, in Liverpool and so forth, so, you know, that's, mm. that's different, it was just, and we, I think we broke lots of, um, we made it easier for lots of people to once we had the scaffold, I think, doing what we did. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you, don't, you don't have to be able to sing to make good records, except for my course. <laughs> well, that's, I was going to I say, so, so you, you transitioned, you, you, were, you were mainly doing more sort of performance and comedy, and then you seemed to transition to, yeah, to, to we music. Had, yeah, we always had the sort of serious side of things, didn't we? We, we did the funny, it's pretty surreal. It wasn't just... The silliness that was part, part of it, uh, and the goon getting back to the goons, you know, there's that certain influences there. In fact, there was uh, to illustrate what Rogers just said, there was a great bit on some guy in Nigeria 
found this extraordinary type of scaffold live at the talk of the town. And there's a bit in it where uh, it's, uh, we hadn't seen this. We had to go, John, Rog, Mike had to go with the kid, with the family to the BFI in London to see this uh, thing broadcast in front of a, a little audience. And so we're watching this thing. And so it's as though we're in the audience, we're watching these people in their prime, in their white suits, etc., singing, sketches, etc. And suddenly came to the poetry bit. And there is Roger uh, and Andy Roberts doing a very serious poet, poem. And I thought to myself, oh boy, <laughs> this is going to be a big test of really what Rogers just said then, what we were doing was satire, was very heavy comment in a nice little lively whack of wit mm. way. Mm. And yeah. suddenly yeah. there is uh, Roger doing his poem. And I'm really thinking, shit, is this too heavy for the audience? So he did it and it was very, it was very straight. And I just thought the audience, oh God, it got to the end. Andy does his last strum on his guitar. Mm. And the audience went, they, they loved it. it was... Martin Luther King, wasn't it? If I remember, that Martin oh, was Luther it? King, death, yeah, that's it, yeah. That was good when doing things like that, in, in, and then like switching to something very daft. And that was, that was part of our strength, I suppose, yeah. There's, there's a, an LP that Spike Milligan released in 1974, which was him live performing at Cambridge University. And it was him and the the musician Jeremy Taylor. And Jeremy was oh, yeah. uh, Jeremy. Yep, was there with his guitar. And Jeremy was he's great. I love his stuff. And Jeremy, so Spike would just be doing. It was just like a a mixed bag of of poetry, of jokes, of readings from the war memoirs and Pakun and things like that um, mm. to a, to a to an audience of largely of students. Okay, and the majority of it was. Yeah, yeah, it was funny. It was it was gags? It was jokes and things like that. But then occasionally Spike would recite a serious poem. Like he he did a poem about um, uh, RFK's assassination, and you could hear a pin drop. And there was a there was a just a kind of an awkwardness to it. I see barbaric sodium city lamps pretending they can see, and they make a new mad darkness. Beyond their orange pools, the black endlessness of time beckons. And what in that unseen dark tomorrow is waiting? That iron sharp tomorrow coming on unknown wheels. Who is the driver? Will he see us all in time? Right, gentlemen. Mike was very much uh, serious about his, about his poetry. That's when I um, uh, met him and gave his book, he always got his his, his books, his poetry uh, books, um, and he's always he, one of his books in front says to Roger, a fellow sufferer, Spike. Mm -hmm. and that's what he thought it was. You know, he thought he, he'd be a, uh, and it did, it did, as we know, he, he was um, near the edge lots of times, and, and, he, and he worried about the world from the from yeah. early early age, didn't he? You know, he was uh, oh, yes, you know, nervous and panicker. Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, <laughs> remember. Uh, Story when I was when it's August 1990, my, my daughter was was born and um and Isabel just been born and um you know excited and that something. And then the phone goes one morning and uh pick it up and Spike, who I'd I'd known for some time by then, but he said, 
Roger, you believe you have uh, we've just had a, a little uh, a baby, is that right? Yes, yeah, yes. Congratulations, uh, Roger. Congratulations. Uh, what's you got? What is it? A girl, is it? I said, yeah, got a lovely girl. I said, yeah. I said, what's what, what are you calling her? Roger? I said, oh, um, Isabel Mary. He said, oh, nice name, nice, yeah, nice, lovely catcher. Too many people in the world, you know. <laughs> I said, what? He said, you know, I said, no, you know, uh, that's overpopulated, just heading for disaster. Don't worry, it should be a few, a few weeks' time, it should be open, it should be borrowing money off you. Too many people in the world, you know. Anyway, come on, congratulations, bye. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the thing. Yeah, he didn't mean to be. He swerved off. He couldn't help himself. You know, he, just, uh, but, but he had he had he had four or five kids of his own. Oh, he did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. But he also had this thing because he brought up in Pune, wasn't he, in India? Yes. Some of the, the crowded trains and the very early age. Yeah. Congratulations to me. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that that there was another song of yours that I I grew up with when I was because I grew up and you may have picked up from my accent that I grew up on the other side of the world and in that's not far enough away hey <laughs> well, that, could that be New Zealand would it it is it is but but every I don't know every other year I want to say in the 80s when I was growing up um, we had uh telethon weekends where um, it was just like comic relief before comic relief, if you know what I mean. You know, you know the sort of thing. And it was you'd, we'd have international stars. Well, the ones that you know, the ones that were prepared to travel to New Zealand for a minimal fee, like Christopher Quentin from Coronation Street, people uh-huh. like that. You know. Uh-huh. Um, but the point I want to make is that um, every now and then, because it was it was like a twenty four hour or forty eight hour live extravaganza on the TV. And every couple of hours, they would stop everything and say, right, look, at, let's look at the total money that we've raised so far and whatever it would be you know uh, three and a half million dollars or whatever and um everyone would cheer and then they would play thank you very much for about five minutes and everyone would sort of clap and cheer and jump up and down um what and, about the prs for that yeah thank you john <laughs> um and I mean, that was your first real, because I think you had a, you'd had a hit before then, but Thank You Very Much was your first real hit. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. The first record release was called Today's Monday, and mm-hmm. it sold 5,000 records. The next record we released was Good Bat Nightman. That sold 350 records. <laughs> right. Okay. And so EMI in the uh, right said, well, that's basically it, but we were, they were committed because of contract through Brian Epstein that we had to have a new single every year. And Mike had gone down to London uh, with this idea of thank you very much song. And we recorded it, but they wouldn't release it because they didn't think it'd go anywhere. And it was Richard Armitage from Noel Gay Agency who mm. we'd mm. met us in, in uh, Edinburgh, one show, and persuaded us to sign with him. So we left Brian, signed with Richard, and he said, have you- he got anything ongoing? And we said, well, Mike's done this song, thank you very much, which EMI got. So he ran up, r- rang up Rod White, who was one of the principal people there, and said, could he send over a copy of the record? Richard played it and thought this was going to be a winner and persuaded him to release it. And that was early October in 1967. Hold on, Hold on John. Don't forget the bit where they had, because we didn't sell any records, they cancelled, they sent us a letter saying, you crap, you don't sell records, yeah. we'll let you go. Yeah. Armitage had a letter saying, you're finished. Yeah, but they say he persuaded them to send the record over, 
Yeah. And when he listened to it, he persuaded them to release it, which they did early October 67. And I, because I had this boutique in, in Liverpool and the, the girls were machinists and it came in one lunchtime and the record was played on Radio Merseyside and all the girls went, <laughs> and it, it went into the top 100 at something like 97. And then it jumped to the top 50, jumped to the top 30, went into the top 20, then went into the top 10 and ended up at number four on the charts. Thank you very much for the entry iron. Thank you very much, thank you very, very, very much. Thank you very much for the entry iron. Thank you very, very, very much. Thank you very much for the bird and bees. Thank you very much, thank you very, very, very much. Thank you very much for the bird and bees. Thank you very, very, very much. Thank you very much for the family circle. Thank you very much, thank you very, very, very much. Thank you very much for the family circle. And that opened so many doors for us because we'd, we'd got so far with the television series, but the record is a different audience. The, the record in itself was inspiring in that respect. And lots of people loved it, like the, the royal family. Prince, I remember Princess Margaret when we did the, that royal concert and she was walking along the line with Tony Armstrong Jones. And she came to us and said, oh yes, scaffolds. We've been practicing, you know, <laughs> very much. Oh, and I said, gosh, you sound just like somebody from Liverpool. <laughs> and do you remember, Mike, Tony Armstrong Jones has a, he had a, a velvet jacket on, a green one, and yeah. used him where he got it from. And he wouldn't answer because he can't ask them questions. Yeah. Oh, really? And, and Princess Alexander. Do you remember me, John, with the big black velvet tie? Yeah. And I was wearing that somewhere, another royal occasion. Well, no, that was at the Savoy Hotel when oh, we were doing Tom, the Tommy Sopwith 80th birthday. That's right. And we, all, all they wanted to do was to sing the song, and it was the, that group that um, backed us. We rehearsed the number in this small room, um. and they, Princess Alexander and Tommy Sopwith and Lady Sopwith and other people were in the, the a banqueting room next door having a meal. When they finished, they all came in. There was 20 of them. Tommy and Lady Sopwith sat on a settee yeah. with all these people behind, including uh, the Princess Alexander and her, her husband. Ogilvy. Yeah, and he was drunk. He could hardly stand. Yeah. That's right. Oh, we sat, way, Tommy, we sat, sorry, we John, sat, I was just say, Tommy Sopwith was the guy who of the Sopwith Camel, wasn't he? Famous in the First World War, yeah. China, First yeah. World War hero. And uh, with, you know, thank you oh. so much for the Sopwith Camel. That's why yeah, he was really? Right, okay. So, so we sang, thank you very much for Tommy Sopwith, thank you very much, thank you very much. And he didn't notice anything. He was well out of it. But Lady Sopwith was going, ooh, 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 ooh. My song. And they recorded this on film and then... They played the film back on a video. Then they asked us to play it again. Yeah. We did. Yeah. We got paid £600 for that gig in Savoy Hotel. And that's all we did was this five-minute song. But I, I don't know if you remember, Mike, um, Princess Alexander was, was asking for phone numbers. She took mine. I think she took yours as Blimey. well. <laughs> yeah. No, no. To finish that thing, you're absolutely right, John. I think... I think, well, John, let's be honest. I, I think know. they were asking for airs. 
I think you were after her. Because Ogilvy was out of it, I <laughs> for a chance here. That was Princess Anne I was after. Oh, was it? Well, anyway, lady, you know, whatever her name is, came up to me and, uh, like, you know, the big velvet, black velvet tie. And she leant over to me and stroked the tie, sort of feeling the quality of, of the velvet. Just in it. And I and uh, she said, oh, what a charming tie. Did you have it made? I said, yeah, I did, actually. And I said, it's just like yours. And I'd forgotten there were royals. Uh, and I suddenly went over to test her velvet and was uh, making a right royal breast of myself. Oh, Lord. Yeah, we'll go into that. Scaffold could be the scaffold. Should be on the, scaffold, yeah. <laughs> on the tower and the scaffold. Yeah, exactly. Very neat. Oh. Yeah. Um, Mike. Um, I'm not going to ask you the question that everyone asks. I'm not going to bother asking about the Aintree Iron, what that means. Okay. Well, but, do you know how? Do you know how that song was conceived? I do. I do. Oh, good. There you are. Well, well, this is the thing because I know that it was to thank your brother for um, for a camera, wasn't it? A Nikon camera, yeah. Um, but is this correct? And this might be complete hokum, but is it right that your brother advised you to drop? the entry iron line because he said it was too oblique uh, that's exactly uh, right there you go you've got all right. these stories what, what does he know yeah but but hang on but this is a man who was quite happy to retain the line the, the movement you need is on your shoulder about a year later and that's that that's you can't get much more oblique than that he actually helped with the recording our kid because we were recording thank you very much in abbey road and it was okay, but it didn't sparkle. And he was going through to his Beatles doing, I don't know, uh, Pepper or something. And uh, he dropped into the studio. I can't remember who the producer was. I think it was a young lad. And we played the track to him. And so our kid said, okay, I've got a few ideas to the producer. Can I go in and have a chat to the Musos? And so the producer, yeah, you're joking, a Beatle uh, helping out on the record, that'll do. And so the kid pops in, and you could see these are all session men, right? Mm -hmm. Because Scaffold uh, don't, never have, never will, I presume, play instruments. Is that right, lads? You still don't well, play? I'm still practicing, me. well, I'm not practicing, I'm thinking of practicing the piano, but, but I'm not. Oh, piano, okay, John? Yeah. I've got a ukulele. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, you yeah. keep practicing, boys. Yeah. In the boys, in those days, we didn't, and so we had to have session men. Well, these are the top London session men. So suddenly, there is the Liverpudlian Scouse git going into these top. So you could see on their faces, oh, uh, God, yeah, that's all that, we yeah. need. Yeah. A, a beaten Liverpudlian yeah, yeah. do. And so they were very sort of dismissive. And our kid quietly went over to each one and said, hey, you know, that drums, if you, if you did that, then, then, then. oh, that's a good idea, Paul. I, I thought of that. <laughs> right. And kept going to all of them, a little bit on the bass, we did that, and then too quietly. And they were all happy. That's less for me to do, great. Yeah. And suddenly when he came back and they all played, the, the, the track that is, the track to... Thank you very much. That was number four, and uh, the what's her name, the Queen Mother, and the Prime Minister's favourite hit. Uh, that's how he helped on that. Excellent. 
and then and then you had you know i won't speed through it but you had lily the pink which was number one which around the world yeah we certainly heard it in new zealand i grew up with it well we weren't that loud <laughs> and jack <laughs> bruce, jack bruce on bass i believe is that right <laughs> that was in as i say we had session men and i was in the, the control room nori paramore oh. was the producer on lily Mm. And we were in tell you where we were the big number three the all you need is love studio because we couldn't get into two where we usually worked and no one was one three was pink floyd they were in there all the time two was the beatle one and us and so we had to go to number one the all you need is love uh, studio and so i'm looking through the the screen uh, at the musos and i said mike vickers from manford man was the musical arranger. And I said to Mike, what's he doing there? He said, oh, it's just a job, he needs the money. So I went out and said to Jack Bruce of Cream, anything you want to do quietly, Jack, anything you want to do on this song, you know, you do it. So he said, oh, to tell you the truth, Mike, I've been looking at that, and I think the best thing for Lily the Pink is uh, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> That's wasn't, what wasn't there a red Dwight playing the piano? No. And you know why I know that, John? Because I've just done a film about Nicky Hopkins called The Session Man. Right. And uh, he was the Nicky Hopkins. I just thought he was Rolling Stones. I found out from this film that he was Beatle, big Beatles stuff he did when our kid wasn't on the piano. Uh, Stones, etc. Us, as you know, when we did, what was it called? Goose, wasn't it? Etc. And I, I hadn't realised, I'd totally forgotten that it was a Nicky Hopkins. Not El Elton was our backing singer. Oh, right. Really? On one of them. Because yeah. the thing, yeah, Tyler was the, you know, Graham Nash was also used to come along, didn't oh, he? And he yep. sang along. And, of course, one of the verses is... Um, Oh, Jennifer Eccles, a terrible freckles, which was called a Holly's hit. Holly's, yeah. And so it seemed the natural thing for um, Graham to stand up and uh, sing my verse. Yeah, he was yeah so everybody brilliant. thinks it's uh, Rog. When yeah. they hear the big number one hit, they all think it's Rog. You yeah. listen to that song, just listen yeah. to the original. It is and so Graham Nash. It's, it's almost a surreal, it's almost a goon like. And it's, yeah. Realism. Let's get Grey yeah. No one knows. Look and tell anybody. Grey Nash wrote Jennifer Eccles. He is singing about Jennifer Eccles. <laughs> Jennifer Eccles had terrible freckles. And the boys all called her neck But she changed with medicinal compound. Now he joins in all the games. Um, I want to I want to talk about about your experiences of growing up listening to the Goon Show and, and whatnot and meeting Spike or, or 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 whatever. I guess I know that Roger, you and John are slightly older than Mike. Oh, yeah. um, older. <laughs> um, did you did you sort of listen religiously 
to the Goon Show <clears throat> at the time. Yes, it was, it was an absolute must. Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember. I was at Hull. Remember, I remember going to Hull University at seventeen, and one of the things we used to do we didn't have television in those days, but after supper every night, everyone just go, as John said, religiously into the uh, common room, and you were glued to the radio and just listening to. It was like you had to do it, isn't it? Listening to the goons and you know the sort of stuff. Me before I'd liked. We we all brought up, I suppose, on radio and comedy, but uh, you know, Itmar and. Um, hmm. Well, all those sort of programs, uh, Ted, Ted, uh, Ted Ray and stuff. Mm. But suddenly, getting the goons—that was like wild. It was the, the play on words, the madness, the voices. You know, Peter Sells' wonderful voice, the singing—it had so much going for it. You know, it was just surreal and just appealing. Re- rebellious, wasn't it? That's mm. A bit like weird, weird. You know, loved it. And and you, you were at Hull University. You weren't there at the same time as Larkin, were you? I was there with Larkin. Yeah, he was. Just, I was. He was a subwarden in this hall. I was in very small, about seventy students, and he was the subwarden. Uh, but I was just, yeah, I was just writing then, young, you know, and I wouldn't have known what to have said to him. But he was, yeah, you know, he was influenced, and he was uh, quite kind to me later okay. on. Oh right, yeah. okay. What I can uh, tell you is in our house in Forston Road. Uh, we used to have an album uh, called Songs for Swinging Sellers, oh, which yep. was uh, Peter Sellers with Hattie Jakes and people like that. And it, we, uh, my brother and I used to listen to this religiously. One of our favorite albums. They were very silly. Who, who produced that? George Martin. No, this is where, this is where the fascinating yeah. thing, only years later, there is our favorite album with the cover, <laughs> Songs for Swinging Sellers. On the cover, you'd never be allowed to do it now. <laughs> There's a guy swinging from a tree. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, the cover of the album. But that thing, our favorite there, and I hadn't, re- of course, I wouldn't realize because the producer of the album, it meant absolutely nothing. It's only years later in retrospect that you look at the album and you hold on. This is quite extraordinary because there from Fourth Inn Road, our kid does his group, very successful group. They go down to London uh, before their great success. They rehearsed and their producer in EMI was a bloke called George Martin. And then you suddenly realize there on the back of Songs of Swinging Sellers, the producer of that is George Martin. So there, there's a bit of a, mm. you know, a coincidence. It's almost like it was meant to be. Exactly. There's another story you've got time for it about Spike. <laughs> so in Ronnie Scott's it's sacrosan. Scott had a rule that any drunks in there were immediately thrown out. It, this it was part of jazz. You listen you hear to listen. And so this was jazz. Long story short, we are on this thing. It was going to be who, who are we going to be with, lads? That uh, flute player with stuck flutes up his nose. Oh, a great, no, great uh, jazz, American jazz guy, wasn't he? Dave yeah. Brubeck. Who? No, it wasn't Brubeck. No, it wasn't. It him. wasn't Brubeck. Oh. We went to see him in the old Scots, and he handed out all these penny whistles, and the audience joined in. And as soon as Ronnie Scott said he was playing, I can't think of his bloody name. Anyway, we ended up with. A girl from Ipanema, what's his name? Boys, who who's... Yeah, I'm just trying to think of an American. 
Um, uh, oh, bloody hell, we're all three of us. Not <laughs> one of us can remember the bloody names. Not um, uh, not uh, Jose. Um, what's his name? No, no he he okay. famous. <laughs> From Eponema, he's a sax player on it. Oh, um, uh, Al- Alpit, Herb Alpit, no, 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 any, any okay. road, Stan Getz. Yes, no, yes, Stan Getz, that's who we're playing. We're back, okay, Stan Getz, it you. was. And I thought to replace, Stan oh Getz. god, I nearly had the name of the other guy, the brilliant, <coughs> uh, and so anyway, it doesn't matter. Stan Getz went on, uh, Scaffo went on, Stan Getz went on. Scaffold went on, Stan gets finished it. That was the evening at Ronnie Scott. And the big thing is no drunks. And so I'm watching uh, throughout the performance, there's been, uh, uh, and I thought, that guy's a bit sort of getting away with it. And it suddenly came to Chuck uh, declared, and this drunk was, wow, yeah, that's the one there, uh, clapping. And, wah, 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 wah. And I thought, bloody hell, he's ruining the sketch because it's a great... Uh, Chocolate is an extraordinary bit of theatre. And so uh, Scaffold, uh, John and Rogers finished and came off. And all of us were saying, who's the drunk in there? What the hell's going on? Ronnie Scott came through. We said, hey, Ronnie, the rule in Ronnie Scott is drunks are thrown out. What the hell was all about? That word guy was really drunk. He said, that drunk was Spike Milligan and he loves you. <laughs> That's you, why he was so uh, demonstrative. Did you meet him? Yeah, oh, mm-hmm. several, lots of time. Do you remember that time, boy? Uh, uh, maybe this was on my own. I think it was one of Scab. I think we were walking along somewhere like Park Lane, and this old battered mini drew up. Mm. Any of you with me? Yeah. Oh, is it you, John? No, I'm just listening, Dawn. And this old, do you remember this? Well, maybe I'm me and me, Todd. This old battered mini uh, pulls up and goes beep, beep, beep to reach down. And there's Spike Milligan saying, do you want a lift, Mike? And I thought, there is a guy that's one of the leading uh, stars of this country, could have a Rolls Royce, could have anything. And Spike Milligan, very Spike, chose to have this old, dilapidated, run-down, uh, mini dirty, he was dirty, hadn't even been washed. Yeah, well, it, that wasn't down to that wasn't down to because he was tight, it was more for yeah. environmental concerns, Correct. really. Uh, way ahead, mm. uh, and John, you 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 played mate in the in a bed sitting room, bed sitting room. Is that was at um, at the Sheffield Playhouse with mm-hmm. Frank Harris, Australian, was the director. When was that exactly? Uh, that was in the seventies. Okay. Yeah, early seventies, and I, uh, when I got the offered the part by Frank Harris, I thought, oh, it'd be good to speak to Spike about it. So I rang up Norma mm. Barnes, who was his agent uh, in Orm Court in London. Mm. Yeah. I said, oh, well, yes, I'll mention it to Spike. She rang me back and said he'd like to meet you. I said, yeah, that'd be brilliant. So I go down to London, go to Orm Court and go into the office to see Norma. And I'm sitting there and it, she said, it shouldn't be too long, he's on his way. <laughs> and the phone rings and she answers the phone and she, she must have said, uh, yes, he's here. And then put the phone down and she said, he's, he's definitely coming. 
and I waited and it went past the time that we were supposed to meet, 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour, yeah. and he never turned up, I had to go. Huh. So uh, I left and she rang me a week later to say, I apologize, but he, he, he got caught up in something, but he'd still like to meet you. Huh? So I went back down to London, back huh. to Old Court, back into Norma's office and waited. And she said, you know, he's, he'll definitely be here. The door okay. opened and Spike put his head round and just said, nice one. Closed the door and disappeared. <laughs> Jeez. And that was it. And I thought, well, he just said, nice one. <laughs> Can I can I can I tell you, Stuart and, and Mike? I wasn't deliberately didn't want to talk about Paul McCartney. Okay, but I I just who's Paul McCartney? Well, I, I just it's Spike's brother. Based on mm. what John's just said, I want to quickly share with you a story, um, which I which I'd like to think is true. Apparently, is true. When um, the, the uh, Beatles anthology, they were they were recording or they were they were planning the Beatles anthology, and George and Ringo went to. Uh, Paul's house in Surrey it would have been 94 I guess and they were just sort of thrashing things out and uh, they got that they reached a sort of a point in the day where Paul suggested that they jump in the car jump in the Land Rover and, and pop down to Spike's house because Spike was a neighbor who just lived down the road That's okay right. and the three of them thought it would be just you know nice go and see Spike who they had been friends with were friends with in the past you know and um arrived at Spike's house, three, three remaining Beatles knocked on the door. Spike eventually answers and says, it's not convenient, <laughs> slams the door. <laughs> Great. I like the story of Spike would be upstairs in his study writing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he'd, he'd, he'd pick the phone up and ring up the post office to send a telegram which was then be delivered to the house downstairs. <laughs> His wife would get the telegram and it would say, can you bring me up a cup of tea? I've got a book uh, a book in front of me. Do you know it's called Dear Robert, Dear Spike? Oh, Robert Graves. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was by uh, written by a friend of mine called Pauline Scudamore. Now, oh, yeah. I used to go to Dea in Mallorca. I still go, but years and years ago I used to go, and I knew Robert Graves before he died. I knew the family, and he was a great friend of Spikes. And people thought that was very unusual, you know. But they were great; they loved each other's work. You know, really, I think Spike, as we know, always wanted to be a poet, really. And Robert Graves, in fact, would like to have been a comedian if he wanted to do Spikes. Mm -hmm. And all these wonderful correspondence between the two of them. And it's all about that. It's all about the bed sitting room, as John referred to, you know, talking about what he's doing in that. And, you know, it's just very, uh, it's, it's wonderful, like, sensitive, you know, it's, and it's very serious in a way. Like, Robert tries to be funny in a way. Um, yeah. And um, Spike is all serious and, and giving his concerns. And it's always teeters on the edge of uh, a breakdown. But it's a, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And, of course, he, as you know, he, he was very serious about his, his poetry. All his life, he, he wrote poems, and that's how I met him um, through Pauline Scudder and through his, his poetry. Yeah. And towards the end of his life, he, he was on, you know, with This Is Your Life, remember that, that program? Yeah. Eamon Andrews used to do. Well, when I was about to go on, it was Mike Laspel. I remember going on to This Is Your Life, and I was asked to go on to talk about the poetry, just a minute or two, talk about the poetry and read the poem. 
so I took along one of his books, Spike Milligan, called The Mirror of Running. Mm. Because, as you know, there were loads of books, there were over, over 34 books, besides his war biographies, all kids' books, kids' yep. poetry and serious poetry. And I remember the, the programme uh, waiting to go on, and Spike was great when one of his old friends came on, particularly any army friends came on, he really made a fuss and he died, and he was with his wife, Sheila, sitting down in the corner, quite old. But then when like, Barry Humphreys was showing up on the screen from Australia talking, sending his best wishes, or all these different American comics, Spike would go, they don't know me. They don't know mm. me. Do they? Yeah. Anyway, mm. the, so at the end of it, Michael Asper says, uh, Roger, you know, poetry, Spike was a, a poet. And I said, yeah, I must have about poetry. And so he says, poets. And he said, well, you read one. So I said, okay. So I, I just opened it up at a page, and there we are. There's one poem called my sorrowing daughter, you know, my darling trembling child, what ails you? Please give me up. And Spike was like, I didn't write that. I didn't know that. I didn't know, I didn't know that. And, and she'll go, shh, you did not. Uh, let me bend it to the earth. I will not fail you. I said, shh, I didn't write that. I didn't. And all the way through, I said, yes, Spike, actually, this is a lifetime. And Spike, I showed him, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. And at the end of it, he came up and said, sorry, Roger, I didn't, just the way you're reading them, it didn't, didn't sound like me. <laughs> um, I want to just talk quickly about you merged, if that's the word, you merged with the Bonzos, didn't you, to form the Grimms or Grimms? Tell me about that. What, how did that come about? Well, we, we'd been booked to do a show. We'd, we'd never played south of Birmingham because we'd only been in the north until we got the record, the Thank You Very Much record. So we were booked to do a show at the Brighton in the uh, pavilion with a group called the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, which we had never heard of, and they'd never heard of us until the records. They had a, re a record out called Urban Spaceman. Mm -hmm. We went down and- Hold on, hold on, hold on, John, John, I've got to rectify that. It's, they did that after uh, I suggested them for the, what to call Magical Mystery Tour, because that introduced them to our kid. And then our kid wrote, uh, produced that record. Sorry, carry on. So we and in the contract it said whose ever record was highest in the chart on the night of the gig would top the bill. Uh, but we we were number four and they were number five when we got to Brighton. So we topped the bill. So they went and did the first half. And if you ever saw this show, it's everything happens. I mean, the musically and comedy and everything, it's just so alive. And we sat on the front row really uh, mild to gate because we were very tight even with our comedy so we did the second half and it was and i on the train going back to london later we sat in the, the same uh, compartment and i said to them well, it's a pity we didn't know what you looked like before because we could have joined together and mixed it up and they said yeah i then got in touch with david wilkinson who was the agent with uh noel gay and said would it be possible to book a, a gig with the Bonzos, uh, like Liverpool, for instance, and then we can play together. Well, they booked the Philharmonic Hall in Liverpool <laughs> and the Manchester Free Trade Hall. And we did the show together. Um, and it, it was brilliant. You couldn't fault it in that respect because mm -hmm. we, we were able to fill in what we did. And we, we'd also, we, we sang together things together. And then, um, but during the show, one of the, the sketches or routines that they had was they'd come on to play and 
there was an explosion yeah. and it looked like the amps had failed and they carried on playing silent. But in, in the Liverpool Phil, when the show was over, or later on, I got contacted by the manager saying that there were a lot of people who, because of the explosion, all the dust which was in the yeah. ceiling of the Philharmonic had come down and they were claiming for the dry cleaning. <laughs> I said, hang on a minute. Mm. When was the last time you cleaned the ceiling of the Philharmonic? So we've never cleaned it. So I said, how could that be our fault? Mm. We should keep it clean. So we wouldn't play. We wouldn't pay. When we got to Manchester to do the Free Trade Hall, they put a clause into contract saying, no pyrotechnics. Mm. So I said to Vic Stanchel, uh, by the way, clause, no pyrotechnics. And he said, oh, that's no problem. No, we, we, we'll be, we, we won't bother. Get on stage. The first thing they did was <laughs> the explosion. The manager, who'd been standing at the back of the hall, ran down the centre aisle, up onto the stage, ran to the um, the lighting box, and and pulled the switch. So the whole of the thing went blank. And he stood at the side of the stage with his arms folded like this, and said, "That'll mm. show you." Well, the audience went wild because they paid to see this show, and it was, it was almost like near a ride. So I. Beckoned my finger at the manager and he popped his head out and I just pointed at the audience and you could see that they were ready to tear the place apart. So you had to run back in and switch the lights back on again. <laughs> but then we, we did a tour with, with the, the, the Grimms and Grimms as Gorman Roberts, Innes McGear, McGough, Stanch. And mm. we, we played universities uh, all over the country. Well, absolutely. Um, could, so I, could I just say, um, just as a guess, Tyra, are you from New Zealand? Because just a, yeah. sometimes words come out that sound like you could be from New Zealand. Am I right? Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, is, yes. there a, is there a prize? Did you, did you know? Did you know Sam Hunt over there? Ah uh, yes. Well, I didn't know him, but he was he was oh, ubiquitous right. on TV when I was, was a kid. He? Yes. I mean, as a pro, was he? Yeah, because I knew we did work. We worked together. We did. Oh, of course, you would have. Yeah. New yeah. Zealand. Yeah. Well, I met him at gigs. He was yeah. very. Um. He was. Like he, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Yes, I was going to say. Yeah. Clark. Yeah. Clark. Bob Dylan. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. One last thing I'd like to ask, uh, or just just one one last thing I want to talk about, if that's okay. And John, unfortunately, I'm sorry. This, I, I guess, this kind of precludes you. But I want to talk about yeah. the the McGough Begier album. Um, oh, right. Right. <laughs> um, because because I want to I want to talk about um, one of the session musicians that worked on that with you and how that came about. Oh, Jimmy! Oh, mm. Jimmy! What? Uh, what? What? Oh, do you want to know about him? Well, yeah. I mean, just in case people listen to this weren't aware, but Jimmy Jimmy Hendrix was yeah, one of your right. music, one of your backing musicians. I'll, I'll do a very quick one. It's called. Uh, right now, this McGough McGear, our market was, I think, produced it, didn't he, Rog? He did, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, we needed a guitar. And so, our kid said, uh, sorry for all those listening on the podcast, uh, and saying, Our kid, it is not my little baby, our <laughs> kid is Liverpool vernacular for my brother. So, our kid said, Uh, so we need a guitarist. He said, Uh, shall I ask Jimmy? I said, Jimmy, who? He said, uh, Jimi Hendrix, and I, <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, 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 you asked Jimi Hendrix, because he was pretty big at that time. Mm. So, uh, yeah, he's in town, I know he is. Uh, so he did, he asked him. And he said, Jimmy's coming to Delane Lee tomorrow to do 
this track called uh, Sobhati in Love. So I said, yeah, okay, believe it when I see it. So the next day we've got uh, the door goes and our kids working on another track. He says, you get that mic, go to the door. And Jimi Hendrix, I'm expecting him with his uh, entourage, with his uh, film crew, his uh, groupies, his drug administers, whatever. <laughs> There's a little lad with a guitar, a lovely... It was, not it? Yeah. Lovely very lad. shy, wasn't he, Mike? Very shy guy. I, mean, I, I thought he was very shy. shy. And he's very much in awe of the other musicians, which is yeah. sort of surprising. Such you know, a, a lovely, lovely man. Mm. So he comes in. I said, would you like, uh, and we had, because Roger and I, we couldn't pay these people. There was the superstars, Graham Nash, uh, John Mayle, etc. all these, our kid, and, uh, all these people. And we couldn't pay them money. Uh, and contractually, it was all difficult anyway. So at least Roger and I could provide uh, drinks, eh? our beer, wine. Good conversation, good conversation, Matt. Right. And brilliant good conversation. Very good conversation. Lively, yeah, yeah, yeah. lively wacko wit. Yeah, fashion tips. So <laughs> I said to Jimmy, would you like anything? There it is, you can have whatever you like. No, no, I'm cool. So, oh, I'll just go and rehearse. So I took him into the studio. We're sitting on Delane Lee carpet. And uh, so it's time for Jimmy to do his, uh, his overdub, his uh, guitar solo. And so uh, he, Jimmy said, look, Mike, I don't know this song. Can you tell me when to come in for the solo? So I said, uh, oh, no, you'll hear it. Don't worry about it. You'll, you'll hear it. It's uh, I'll, just in the middle bit where I stop singing, you play the guitar. And he said, sure, okay. Uh, no problem. So I went into the studio with our kid. So where uh, the song comes over, oh, you love the little do 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 do. I stop singing, and suddenly, <laughs> absolutely, Jimi Hendrix at his very best. Mm. And so our kid, who'd been working on Pepper for months and years, and suddenly this wild man of Borneo's guitar into the infinite. He said, what do you think? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Jimmy Andrews. Fantastic. Yeah, okay, great. I said, what do you mean? Okay. What's your problem? I said, well, he didn't come in the right bit. <laughs> so he said, so do you want to tell Jimmy Andrews come in for the right bit? So I said, certainly will. So I went out into the studio, sat on the carpet. He played the uh, sitting down on the carpet. And I said, uh, look, Jim, I will tell you. <laughs> I will, will tell you. I will indicate when to come in for the solo by tapping your knee. And that's exactly what I did for the solo on So Much In Love. So tapped his knee. He did the solo, etc. I went back into the thing and they played it back to me. And so our kids said, so what do you think? I said, perfect, it came in the right time. He said, no, no, compared to the other one, when it was the wild one, et cetera, that's all controlled, et cetera. Which one do you want? I said, oh, I see, oh, I see. Sorry, I don't know that much about music. Sorry, you're right, the first one. So our kids said, oh, good. And he said <laughs> to the engineer, can you come out with the first one? The engineer said, 
What do you mean the first one? We've been wiping everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's why if you listen carefully to that track, you can hear the little tap before uh, Jimmy comes in. But you can hear the tap on the knee. Yeah, yeah, can you? Like, yeah. <laughs> so much in love, I ride the clouds high up in the sky. By the way, I believe a, um, a signed LP of the, that LP turned up in uh, an Oxfam shop years ago, oh, and it yeah. was and it was Jimmy's copy that you two had signed for him, and someone had taken it to an Oxfam shop. Mm. Mm. Well, he took it, he threw it away. Gentlemen, listen, it has been an absolute pleasure, and thank you so much for 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 speaking with me today. Now, uh, Roger, um, you've got you've got a couple of books out at the moment. Um, tell me about those safety and numbers. Is that right? Oh, do I, it's all right. No, it's going well. Um, I'm sure we're all, <laughs> get the plug in, Rog. Go on. Uh, yeah. Well, I've got, yeah, I've got a book came out in, in vehicle safety and numbers um, poetry book, which I, I wrote uh, during the, during the uh, lockdown, of course. Well, part of the year. And uh, Penguin book and the two new books, one called Over to You, which is a children's book. And um, another one called An Imagining Menagerie and one called Money Go Round. Um, which is a kid's book uh, about money going around, um, which I've just uh, made into a, a, a family musical, which uh, which has been performed down here and will we'll be on tour. Uh, well, do, next you, year, hopefully. do you ever have any time off? Are you always working? Um, I'd like to, but um, yeah, well, yeah, well, we're all busy. It's what you do, isn't it? You keep doing things, keep doing things. Yeah. yeah well, keep doing things. And before I get to my plug, John, have you got anything to plug before I get to my plug? <laughs> Loads. So you've got nothing to sell. I've got really? loads. Oh, well, um, in terms of writing, I'm three quarters of the way through writing um, Climbing Mount Everest by public transport, which I'm hoping will be out by the end of the year. <laughs> and the follow-on book will be called the SCS, which you have got the SAS, the SBS, which is a special air squad and the special boat squad. And this is the special car squad. And that's a spoof on special forces, and that will be written for next year. And following that will be Saint Enoch's in the Fold, which is a village in rural England where there's murder, excessive sex, and uh, anything that can go wrong in society. That will be in that village. Good lord. Okay, is it time for my plug? Yes. I haven't finished plugging. Oh, go on then. <laughs> Well, um, I started the Post for Peace on the Will, and that's spread around. We're doing um, the Palm House in Liverpool. We're doing the Crawford House in Liverpool. And we're doing uh, one in Smithdown Road, uh, the Post for Peace. Uh, I'm booked into the Liverpool Fringe Festival in October. Uh, oh, the uh, 20, not the 29th, John. Yeah. Uh, oh, no. 
Yeah, why? What's wrong with that? Oh, we've got a gig on. We've got a gig on. Death <clears throat> old gig, John. Oh, no, John. Is that still on? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. You'll, have to, you'll have to miss oh, that one, God, John. Sorry, and then uh, I've been asked to help to start a storytelling um, club, a storytelling show. It's called The Wirral Wanderers. And we're, I'm going to the Fort Perth Rock tomorrow because they've got a new setup um, for gigs. I'm going to look at the place tomorrow to see if we can book into that. Well, there's my plug over. We've got to get the door. <laughs> oh, see you, Mike. <laughs> Excuse me, lads. We're back. Keep talking, John. All right. Oh, right. Um, there was uh, something else that uh, I've been asked to do, but just it never stops, as Roger probably say. And I've booked, been booked to play a good poetry chance in September. Mm -hmm. um, but we're dedicating a, a poetry, a, um, a peace tree on September the 21st, which is International Poetry Day, and that's in the um, Quakers uh, Peace Garden. That's, that's, that's going ahead. Um, well, luckily, John, I'm just back from the front door, letting my wife in. And is it time for my plug yet? Yeah. Oh, my, do you plug for God's sake? I thought you'd never bloody ask. Uh, you should say that, John. But right. uh, it, what I have now, I've got a wonderful book. In fact, nay, brilliant book. Uh, an accumulation of historical photographs and drawings, my first drawings, on a wonderful uh, firm called Genesis Publishing. It's cost a fortune, but it's worth it. <laughs> it's very good. Very in good. fact, boys, I very think good. you might have a copy of yes, very good. Very good. What do you think of it? Recommend it. Very good. Very good. Very good. I, I, sent a price, I sent a copy to my daughter who's living in America, and she thought it was brilliant, Mike. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you, Rog. Uh, my rest cases. Uh, well, well, listen, uh, thank you. Listen, we didn't even get to talk about um, Roger's 56 second version of Longfellow's The Wreck of the Hesperus. I wanted to talk about that, Roger. Oh, never um, mind. No, no, we, no. We never oh, got to... I could tell you some stories, John. Okay. Yeah. We never got to talk. <laughs> I wanted to talk about you you appearing with Zager and Evans on a television program because I'm oh, fascinated right. by Zager and Evans. But listen, I, I'd been... like to talk about my days with the scaffold. Of oh, I wish you would, John. Uh, oh, they, they were the days, uh, John. Stories, you? Another time. I've never, never looked back. Another yeah. time. The clock is against us. So thank you guys and so much. By the way, Tyler, does this go to New Zealand? It goes all over the world, Mike. So can you say hello to Peter Jackson for me, a personal friend of mine? Oh, Clang. So that, there's a name drop, if ever heard one. That's uh, easy. Hello, uh, hello, Peter Jackson, on behalf of Hi, Mike Pete. McCartney. So, as I was saying, the scaffold started in 1962. <laughs> all right, yeah. right, see you, Roger. See you, mate. Bye, Roger. Bye, John. Bye, Mike. Listen, um, Who's still here? Those that are still here. <laughs> I'm not. I left 20 minutes ago. Oh. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still coming. All right. Um, thank you so much, you two, and, and Roger, uh, who's just you. left. And um, I really appreciate your time. And all the best with the show on the 29th, which I'm sure will be uh, a, a triumph. A triumph. Same. Yeah. If it's anything like this, it's going to be... Unbelievable. It will be. Make the papers. <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't. If I were you, Tyler, I, I couldn't 
edit out, cut out one second of that. I've got to tell you the truth. Okay. Thanks, Uh, Tile. Thank you. Listen, it's been fantastic. Really appreciate it. And it's It's been really fantastic. Is it? We started in 1962. (laughs) (laughs) What were we called, John? At the Liverpool One Fat Leg Show. That's all.